provide for your mom, you're like, wow, my wife must have schemed for like weeks to make this happen, and I knew nothing about it. Which, what else does she scheme about that I know nothing <laughs> about? That you realize that, that there's these people you live very close to who are plotting and doing things without you being able to know. It's a little disturbing. But you've had it happen, or you will have it happen, that you are going about the normal business of life, and all of a sudden a surprise pops upon you. It's such a surprise that maybe people were scheming and plotting without you knowing. And that's the sort of moment we have before us this morning in Acts chapter 9. It's actually one of the biggest surprises in Scripture, maybe outside the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the biggest surprise in all of Scripture. And the surprise being that the Lord Jesus Christ saves this particular man, Saul of Tarsus. And not just saves him, but then decides to use him and commission him to be sort of the chief apostle to the Gentile world. It is certainly a surprise that no one in that day saw coming. You even hear the surprise in Ananias's uh, reply to God. It's, it surprised Saul of Tarsus. Obviously, he didn't see it coming. But we, we come to discover in this passage that there was somebody scheming, right? There was somebody plotting who had been working situations to bring this moment to pass. That what Saul doesn't realize but we're able to discover in this passage is that he has been tracked this whole time by the hound of heaven. That, 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 that God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have, have come together and formed a conspiracy to surprise Saul of Tarsus. And we get to watch that surprise moment unfold here this morning. And it's a story of what Christians often call conversion. Right For Christians, a conversion is that moment, that identifiable moment, where somebody comes to publicly, visibly place their faith in Christ and becomes a new creation. That when the Holy Spirit uh, comes upon them and helps them to come to Christ, that this is the moment Christians call conversion. And for many people in this room, you may have a memorable conversion. You may have a less memorable conversion. But it's always a little daunting when you read this particular moment in Acts 9, because it makes our experiences feel somewhat inferior, right? That we weren't famous, living a destructive lifestyle. We didn't have a Hollywood moment necessarily when it came to our profession of faith. And in fact, if you're like me, your conversion may have been the least surprising thing that ever happened. (laughs) In other words, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to Christian school for part of my life. I was drugged to the church on Sunday after Sunday that I had spent uh, from the nine months before I was born exposed to the scripture. And so in some ways, my conversion was the least surprising thing that could have ever happened. And maybe that's true for some of you, maybe not. But this morning, what we want to do is just to look at this particular experience of Paul's to see what happened to him, to see where the commonalities are in our experience as well as the differences and also to consider what we can expect for ourselves and maybe for our children and friends as well. But what I want to do is just to look at this passage and consider two things, and that is who God saves and how God saves. And then in light of those two things, what does that mean for us? What should we expect? Who does God save and how does God save? We start off with that first thought of who does God save, And the the message this morning in Acts 9 and from the rest of Scripture is God saves his enemies. That's who God saves. When God is looking for candidates for conversion, for people to bring into his kingdom, 
and into his family, he looks for his enemies. And that's what we find here with Saul of Tarsus. In fact, if you notice, we're told in chapter 8, verse 3, that he was ravaging or destroying the church. That this was his life's purpose. This was his life's passion. In fact, it literally means there, that word means he was bent on destruction. Nothing excited him more. Nothing got, uh, got him up in the morning and out into the world more than the thought of a, being able to bring the Christian family and uh, to commit a genocide of sorts by destroying these people from the face of the earth. That's what got his blood pumping. In fact, he goes on, if you go through the book of Acts, later in chapter 26, towards the end of the book of Acts, he says this in retrospect about his life prior to his conversion. He says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make the Christians blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Do you hear what Paul says? He says, I was in raging fury against Christians, and my life's goal was to track them down wherever they went and bring it to an end. In fact, we heard it said in the passage we read, the only reason he's on this trip to Damascus is because all the Christians in Jerusalem were afraid of him. And so they left. And they left to go to places like Damascus. And so he went to Damascus. That he was never going to be content until he could have his bloodthirstiness satisfied with the death of Christians. And of course, we're told here he is God's enemy because God himself says in verse 4 and 5, why are you persecuting me? That God himself acknowledges Saul is an enemy of the kingdom of God and of Christ himself. If you want to get a sense of just how well known, notorious the evil of Saul of Tarsus was, you heard it through the words of Ananias in verse 13, where God tells Ananias, go to the house, go meet Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done. So Ananias like, it's not a little rumor going around town here, okay? It's well known. It's in every paper. Every, everybody tweets about it. It's tw- trending on Twitter. This guy is evil. And he's not just evil, he's evil against the saints. That he is bloodthirsty for our lives. And so Ananias is somewhat in shock that he would be sent to go and en- enroll him in the service to the kingdom of God. But it's hard for us as we sit here to appreciate just the notorious nature of the evil of Saul of Tarsus. Of course, we see it in history. We see it in our own day of how some people become personified as evil, right? Hitler, uh, as he seeks out genocide against the Jews, uh, Saddam Hussein with the Kurds and others. These people come to personify, take on the face of evil. And I, it's, always, it's always tempting to do that, right? If we do word association, and I passed out note cards this morning, and I said evil, write down the first thing you think. It's probably of another person than yourself, right? That, that's typically the way we think about evil. We personify it as these people in history, these dictators and tyrants, people like Saul of Tarsus. I was reminded of the danger of doing this through a story that Wendell Berry tells. Eric's not here, so I'll tell a Wendell Berry story. Um, 
There's a Wendell Berry story where he says, you know, uh, they heard this, a friend was complaining to him about being stuck in traffic. That he was on his way to this meeting, but he got stuck in traffic. And he was describing just how frustrating of an experience it was. And then Wendell Berry reminded this, this gentleman, you do realize you are traffic. <laughs> like, you know, you were one of the cars <laughs> that was out there in the way of people trying to get somewhere. <laughs> it wasn't just about all of them being in your way of your plans. You know, you, you were part of the problem that you were complaining about. And that's true for us. It's true for us when it comes to evil. It's, it's easy, it's even lazy, to talk about evil as this thing out there. We're frustrated by the evil of the world. And there's truth to it, right? Just as there's truth to traffic. But there's truth, too, to the fact that it's harder to acknowledge the, the evil that we have to look at as it exists in the mirror every morning, right? It's harder to look inside ourselves and acknowledge whatever measures of evil lurk in our own lives. It's easier... It feels better to acknowledge evil as it exists outside of us than to acknowledge as it exists in our own lives. But as uh, Alexander Zolstenstein says, the dividing line between good and evil cuts through every human heart. But who does God save? He saves evil people. He saves his enemies. And the good news that the scripture gives is that while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. Not when we started the road to recovery, not when we committed ourselves to 90 days in rehab, but rather while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. And elsewhere in Romans it says, God justifies the wicked. So who does God save? He saves notorious, evil, very visibly evil, destructive people like Saul of Tarsus. But everyone he saves has to fit one particular criteria. They have to be his enemy. They have to be people who can say that I have sinned against God and justly deserve his, his displeasure and without hope save in his mercy, which is the number one requirement to join this church, is that you be able to say that. I always think it's peculiar that as church membership, our vows lead with, do you, do you acknowledge that you're no good? <laughs> it's not necessarily the membership uh, uh, pitch that you want to give people. But here in Scripture and elsewhere, we learn that that's, that's what is the criteria for the saving work of Christ, is that we acknowledge that we are his enemies, but that while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. But that's who God saves. The second thing we want to consider from this passage is how does God save? What are the, some of the ways that God uses to save people? And here in Acts 9, you know the story, probably you've heard it before, of Saul's conversion. He uses a very immediate almost dramatic Hollywood-esque sort of way to save Saul. He has a, what I would call, a lightning bolt experience where he, there was no precursors. You know, we don't have a story of Saul just having recently read a C.S. Lewis novel and then comes to discover that he wants to meet Aslan or something like that. You know, nothing of that sort. There is no precursors, no notions of anything, just an immediate lightning bolt experience where the God of heaven and earth disrupts his journey and calls him to himself. That's one way that God saves people. We know that because the Bible tells us so. That is a way that God saves people. But there's some things, even though that may may not be the same circumstances in which we all have experienced salvation, there are some commonalities that we can find here with Saul's experience. 
No matter, no matter the circumstances, we know the way God saves people is he first of all confronts them. Right? You have to, God confronts us with our sin, that we have fallen short of his glory, and then presents us, confronts us with the beauty and the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That no matter what age, stage, place, whatever, we know that God uses that to bring all of us to salvation, to confront us with the ugliness of our own selves, and to confront us with the beauty of Jesus Christ. How does God save us? Well, Notice that in here and elsewhere in Scripture, we learn that the very God we offend with our crimes is the very God who comes to offer us pardon. You know, I always find it interesting that God, when Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, appeared to Saul of Tarsus, Saul asked, who are you? And what, what is the answer that he's given in verse 5? I am Jesus. And what I find interesting is that, of course, the second person of the Trinity goes by many names in Scripture. But that was the name that he himself chose to reveal himself to Saul. And if you know the meaning of that name, it means, I am the one who saves. He could have, could have called himself, I am the king, I am the Lord, I am the ruler. But he comes to him, he says, Saul, the person who's talking to you, the person you're absolutely terrified of right now, is the one who saves. That's who's talking to you. And so he comes to Saul, and even in the very name he chooses to reveal himself, shows him that he comes to save him, not to destroy him. And of course, it's also interesting to see when, why did he choose this moment? I mean, I'm sure, right, if God had chosen to, he could have, he could have had this moment uh, in a dream with Saul. He could have done it over lunch back in Jerusalem one day. But why does he choose to save him while he's walking on this road to Damascus? Part of it, we think, is probably preventative, right? He wants to keep him from getting to Damascus. But also, just the picture itself, that here is someone, an adult, who feels like they have a, a purpose and passion in life, and God totally disrupts it, and God totally sets them on a different path. And that's the way God saves every, everyone, that God disrupts our journey. That we had our plans, we had our destination in mind of what life was going to look like, where we were trying to get to, and then God comes and in his son disrupts it and says, I have a plan. I have a purpose for you that isn't the one that you have, and I'm going to set you on a new path. I'm going to give you a new purpose in life. And so God, in a very real way, saves Saul from Saul's plans. He saves Saul from himself. And I would say that's true for all of us. That we all have a driving force, we have a destination in mind we want to get to in life, and one of the more gracious things that God can do is to come and to save us from ourselves. To save us from our plans, to save us from our motives, to save us from the destination we're trying to get to. God saves us by confronting us, by changing us, and we also see in these verses, he also adopts us. It's not just uh, a, a moral change, but there's a change in Saul's relationships. He's now part of a family. Did you notice an adoption took place in the verses we heard read? Because in verse 17, we see the, the family come up. In verse 17, when Ananias now goes to the house where Saul is and laying his hands on him, which must in and of itself have been a very powerful moment 
to lay his hands on him. Ananias looks at him, touching him, and says, Brother Saul. He calls him brother. This is the same Ananias who just before had said, everybody's talking about how evil this guy is. And now just a few verses later, he's touching this man and welcoming him into the family. Brother Saul. And this, once again, is the way God saves people. He doesn't just confront us with Christ, but he also brings us into the family. And in this case, the very family that Saul had set out to destroy was now the very family to which he belonged. And of course, something spiritual happens as well, because as we heard in verse 17, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and scales fell from his eyes. Something significant happens here in the life of Saul of Tarsus. And of course, that's the way God saves all of us. He confronts us with Christ. He brings us into his family. He gives us his Holy Spirit. It's the way he saves Saul. It's the way he saves us, no matter the circumstances surrounding it. But just step back for a moment and think about the very picture in these verses. That essentially the God who Saul of Tarsus should have feared because of what he had been trying to do, because of his life's work, is now also his only source of hope. That the very God that Saul wanted to run from is now the only God he can run to. And I would say, once again, that's true for us. That our tendency, our impulse is to run away from God, because we, when we, especially when we see our sin, especially when we see evil as it exists in our own lives. That we, we, like Adam and Eve, we feel we must hide this from God. We must run. We're ashamed. But what does Scripture say? What's kind of the, the paradox of Scripture? The God that we want to run from is actually the God we need to run to. That the God we should fear, that should be our greatest fear, is also the only one who can give us peace from our fears. That his love is greater than our sin. That his grace is greater than than our enmity towards him, and his peace is greater than our fears. And if, if we ever need a picture of grace in the Bible, this is it. Because what is grace? As one pastor wrote, grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give. And in these verses, we're reminded that the way God saves people he, is he is moved by his grace to seek people out when they have absolutely nothing to give to him. But that brings us to the question I want us to think about in light of this, which is then what should we expect? If this is one of the few stories in the Bible about conversion, is this the standard? Is this the baseline by which we're to compare our conversions? Well, it is one story of conversion in the Bible, but it's not the only story of somebody coming to faith. We know from Paul's letters to Timothy that he tells Timothy, he reminds Timothy of how Timothy came to faith. How did Timothy come to faith? He says in 2 Timothy 3, that Timothy, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the scriptures, and that your faith first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Paul himself acknowledges that his experience of salvation is not Timothy's experience. That Timothy's experience was being raised by a grandmother and a mother who were deeply committed Christians, who taught him the scriptures from his youngest days, 
And through that kind of diligent faithfulness, he came to the same Christ that Saul of Tarsus came to, just in a different way, through different means. That in the Bible, there is no uniform experience. This is the one way everybody comes to faith. But there's actually these, all these different ways that circumstances that God uses. As I am sure is true in this room, as many of us could recount the ways that we came to faith in Christ, some of us would be like Timothy. Our stories are about grandparents and parents who invested in us over a number of years. But for some of you, it, it may have been a college experience. For some of you, maybe you did, like Saul of Tarsus, have a destructive life as an adult that God saved you from at some point. But there is a variety of circumstances, a variety of ways that God uses to bring us to himself. Not only does scripture remind us of that, but I'm, a, I'm fond of reading biographies from church history. And I'm always amazed at the stories of how people in church history came to faith. Some of you may know the story of Augustine. Augustine's moment of conversion was because he was in his study and the window was open and children were outside playing and singing a common jingle of that day, which was take up and read, take up and read. And he felt moved inexplicably to go and grab the Bible and take it up and read it. And that's how he came to faith. That Archibald Alexander, who founded Princeton Seminary in 1812, he was brought to faith because he went over to an elderly neighbor's house because she was blind but liked to read books. And as he was reading one of the books to him, she was a Christian woman, and the book she had him read was from a Puritan writer. And he came to faith by, by community service. <laughs> God used this simple act of community service to introduce him to Christ. Abraham Kuyper, some of you may know of from... Uh, the Netherlands, was brought to faith by reading a novel, The Heir of Redcliffe. Adoniram Judson, a great Baptist missionary, was brought to faith because he stayed in a hotel one night as a young man. He was bent on a destructive lifestyle, very immoral. He stayed in a hotel one night, and the guy in the room next to him was dying, and he had to listen to the guy's pains and agonies all night long. And he woke up the next morning and sought out a minister. That it's strange the ways God uses to bring people to salvation. That some of them could make for Hollywood moments, but I imagine many of them, if you feel like even myself, uh, there's nothing dramatic to it. It lacks a certain uh, dynamic that we see here with Saul of Tarsus. And it's just a reminder that the most important question is not really how did you come to faith. That may be an interesting question. It may be an encouraging answer to hear. But the most important question is, do you belong to Jesus Christ? Not how did that happen necessarily, but do you belong to Jesus Christ? That that's the most important question, and that's the only one that's going to matter. Is, is not how did you get to the foot of the cross, but that you find yourself there. That that is what is important at the end of the day, and there is no such thing as a superior testimony of conversion. There's no such thing as an inferior testimony of conversion because all stories end the same. <laughs> you find yourself embracing, trusting, following Jesus Christ. Why did God save Saul of Tarsus? Well, Saul himself answers that question later on in his life in 1 Timothy 1. He says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners 
among whom I am foremost. And then he goes on to say, for this reason he saved me, that he might display his perfect patience. Saul says, the reason God chose to save me is because God wanted to give an example to people. That if he can save me, he can save anybody. That if he can save somebody with such rage and fury and evil in their life, pointed in one direction, and that was against him, against Christ himself. If he can save me, he can save anybody. And this morning, I, it just brings two things to mind. That first of all, every time we look in the mirror, we, we ought to be astounded, astounded by the fact of who God saves. Right? That every time we look in the mirror, we ought to be amazed that God would save this person. That God would save a person who has these sorts of desires and, and this evil that has been part of our lives. That God would save us should astound us. But this scripture this morning is also encouraging because if we're honest with ourselves, there are people that we think are beyond the hope of salvation. That we think that that person that we've known for all of our lives who is so deeply embedded in evil and immorality and destructive patterns that we, whether we say it explicitly, we believe it implicitly, is beyond the hope of salvation. And this morning, the scripture reminds us, if God can save Saul of Tarsus, God can save anyone. And in fact, there may be people groups in the world that we think are beyond the hope of salvation. People groups that would look much like Saul of Tarsus. And this morning, the scripture reminds us that God saves surprising people in surprising ways. That he, that's what he's in the business of doing. He did it in Acts 9. He continues to do it today. And no matter if our experience was just like Saul's or, or completely different in the circumstances surrounding it, the most important question is not necessarily how it happened or the ways God made it happen, brought it about. But the most important question is, do we belong to Jesus Christ? Do we find ourselves at the foot of the cross? And being found there is the most important place, most important thing that we could ever consider. Pray with me. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God who saves, the God who brings us into your own family. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are in the business of dying for enemies. And we thank you that while we were yet your enemies, you died for us. And we pray that every morning, every day, that we would be astounded by that truth, that it would take us back, that it would give us pause, that you would make us your children and give us your spirit. But it also, we pray, help us to leave here today and go into this week and go into your world with a sense of expectancy about who you're going to save. That as we think and as we encounter evil in its many forms in our own lives and in things around us, help us to have expectancy that you are Jesus, the one who's come to save your enemies. And so help us to not only live with expectancy, but to share with expectancy, to pray with expectancy about what you're up to in this world. And we ask it for the sake of Christ's name. Amen.